Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome back to episode number 15. Today I'm joined by Nicola Rinaldi and we're talking all about hypothalamic amenorrhea. Dr. Nicola Rinaldi has a PhD in biology from MIT. Since experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is missing periods, she has been on a mission to spread awareness of this condition and how to recover. In 2016, she published the book, No Period, Now What?, which was updated in March 2019 to be more health at every size aligned. This book is a comprehensive resource that includes much of the medical and scientific research that underlies our current understanding of the triggers for amenorrhea. What steps to take for recovery and treatments to use for recovery and pregnancy as needed. Since publishing No Period Now What, Dr. Rinaldi has been on a mission to spread awareness about hypothalamic amenorrhea and recovery, appearing as a guest on dozens of podcasts like this one, attending and presenting at industry conferences, as well as continuing to participate in ongoing academic research studies. She now works with clients on period recovery and getting pregnant. In this episode, we're going to cover Nicola's struggle with HA, what it actually is, and the three main factors that can contribute to the development of it. The importance of our menstrual cycle and ovulation for overall health, weight management and how that plays into hypothalamic amenorrhea. We also discuss intuitive eating, why the birth control pill isn't the answer to a missing period, and how to overcome HA naturally using nutrition and lifestyle changes. I want to preface this episode by just giving you a heads up. Me and Nicola do kind of disagree on certain points. There's a lot we have in common, but just certain things in terms of the approach she takes in terms of diet. For her, she believes that people should just eat whatever they want as long as they're getting the calories. If they want to eat cakes, then go ahead. And I do definitely agree with that in some cases. If we're healthy, we can handle things like that. I refer to them as junk foods, which she wasn't really on board with, but I feel like a lot of people who are struggling with HA, in my experience, are also dealing with many other health conditions, whether that's autoimmunity, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, insulin resistance, and I don't believe that it's necessary that we always have to turn to some of these junk foods, ice creams, pizza, to get enough calories or to get our period back. I've personally did it the healthy way, and many of my clients have also done the same. It's totally easy to get 2,500, 3,000 calories every single day using healthy foods, whether that's meat, eggs, healthy fats, oils, fruits, and starches. And if I was to eat 
cakes and pizza then I would feel absolutely terrible and I don't think that's a good way to support our hormone balance. I understand that they're easier to get calories but I don't think it's the only way. Plus the concept of intuitive eating does work really well for many women and I do recommend it for those who are balanced and are healthy but if people are struggling with chronic yeast infections, sugar addictions, appetite or metabolic dysfunction then I don't think that they can follow intuitive eating like Nicola recommends and it's all good having junk food on occasion if you really want to and not restricting but when you're on a healing journey and dealing with chronic illness, chronic inflammation then I don't believe that that's always the right move so yeah I just wanted to share that because that's kind of things that we get into during the podcast episode and I totally respect Nicola's work and she provided a lot of really good information on the podcast but I did want to make that difference in the way that we approach certain things. Welcome to the podcast thank you so much for joining me today I love you to kind of start by introducing yourself and explaining how you got into female hormones and in particular hypothalamic amenorrhea. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate the chance to connect with you and your audience. Um, so my journey to HA started, or to, to learning about HA started because I actually experienced it myself. Um, so at the end of my graduate school career, I was doing a PhD at MIT in computational biology. Um, I was exercising a lot. I was doing a bunch of things because I loved them. I was completely non-athletic in high school. And then over the years since high school, like college, and then between college and grad school and then grad school, I just started playing a bunch of sports and weightlifting and you know, just doing all these things that I, and I, I found that I really, really loved them. Um, my, my major sport was ice hockey, which I picked up after I met my husband. I had figure skated as a kid and then um, he was going off and playing once a week and I was like, that looks like fun. Can I come? And he said, sure, and put me in his gear from when he was a teenager and I was absolutely hooked. I loved it so much. Um, so that was all well and good. And then um, some of the guys in my lab decided to go on a diet. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I could lose some weight. And I'd been reading a lot about, um, you know, I was thinking about getting pregnant. And I'd been reading a lot about, you know, various, so many places were seem to be saying, lose weight to have an easy time getting pregnant and lose weight to have a healthy pregnancy. And so I was like, oh, you know, perfect. I'm, you know, I'm, I want to get pregnant. So this is like great timing. So I cut my calories significantly, um, ended up losing a fair bit of weight, um, about 10% of my body weight. And then about a month, six weeks later, I went off the birth control pill to, you know, think like I was ready to get pregnant. And um, so my, you know, my period never showed up. Um, in hindsight, it's no surprise whatsoever. I mean, I just put my body through this incredible, incredibly stressful experience of losing all that weight and underfueling. Um, but at the time, I was like, that's really weird. I don't understand what's going on. Um, so I saw a bunch of doctors and Eventually, about six months later, I was diagnosed with um, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which um, we often abbreviate as HA just because of hypothalamic amenorrhea is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's sort of what, what happened to me. And then um, I looked around on the internet. This was in 2004. And there was really nothing out there about HA. There was nobody, no other stories, no blogs, nothing. So I started my own blog, um, 
and I sort of got involved in just the general infertility blogging community. And I was just trying to learn more about HA and understand it. And so I, you know, I researched the medical literature because I'm a scientist, so that's what I do. Um, and, you know, eventually I kind of figured out that I needed to cut down on my exercise and eat more. Um, I went through a whole journey with fertility treatments because my um, I had started seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, and even though I had one period, she then said, "Oh, you never know when you're going to get another one because you were you had irregular cycles as a kid," and so I jumped into doing injectables. Um, she also told me that the oral medications wouldn't work for getting pregnant, which is also probably not true. Um, you know, something else I've discovered in in my years since then. So I did eventually end up getting pregnant naturally. I had four failed injectable cycles, um, and then we were going to do IVF, but waiting for insurance reasons, and I ovulated on my own, and um, I was amazingly lucky in that I got pregnant on that first ovulation. Um, so then I was on bed rest for a little while while I was pregnant and found the Fertile Thoughts message board, um, which is kind of, you know, it's, it, it, nobody's really posting on it anymore because Facebook is a lot more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, interactive. Yeah. Um, but so I posted on that board for a long time and learned a ton just from, um, you know, chatting with the other women who were on there who also had HA and sharing my experiences. and. Every time somebody had a question, I'd go look in the medical literature to answer it. And so I learned a ton. Um, and eventually the woman on the board group, you know, would say to me, you know so much, you should write a book. And I was like, ah, yeah, I should. Because I'd never, it's not something I'd ever thought about, but um, I had something to say. And so it took me three and a half years, which is way, way, way longer than I ever expected. Um, but, you know, I think that the book is really comprehensive and shares just about everything that I know about HA. Um, and I've definitely gotten really good reviews and, um, you know, I think, I think it's helped a lot of people since I published it. So that's, uh, that's my story. And the book definitely helped me as did the Facebook group. You've got a massive community on Facebook and yeah, really interactive, so much knowledge and support on there too. And I struggle with HA myself along with PCOS. So we're going to discuss that a bit more too. The two can definitely coincide and maybe you're more likely to develop HA when you've got a hormone imbalance like PCOS. And that's what happened to me. Um, I came off the pill, didn't have a period for like two years, partly due to chronic gut issues, stress, restrictive diets because of the gut issues, Mm -hmm. over exercising pretty much all of the different risk factors were kind of rolled into one and yeah I didn't have a period for two years the treatment approach for hypothalamic amenorrhea is a little bit different to what people would usually consider with hormone imbalances like you say it's usually mm -hmm. restrict cut things down restrict calories restrict fat but we'll definitely go deep into the dietary approaches and the lifestyle approaches too if someone's listening to this, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is HA? Could you just give them a basic overview of what it is? Yes. Maybe the common indicators and the common risk factors too. Yes, absolutely. So um, hypothalamic amenorrhea is when you are missing your monthly menstrual cycle because your hypothalamus is not doing its job in sort of starting the menstrual cycle. So the hypothalamus is an organ in your brain that um, 
collects, uh, collects information from a whole bunch of different bodily systems and then also sends out signals to a number of different systems to, um, you know, to, to basically run our bodies. Um, so our hypothalamus controls how, um, how warm we are, it controls our hunger and fullness signals, it controls our stress system, um, and it also controls our reproductive system. So all of those things are intertwined, and all of them kind of feed back on each other. Um, the, the thyroid is also involved, as well as the pituitary. You know, none of our systems are totally independent. So what happens with hypothalamic amenorrhea is that your hypothalamus gets suppressed for one of a number of reasons. Um, so there are three major factors that can suppress your hypothalamus. Um, I think the biggest one by far is energy deficit. So if you are not eating enough on a daily basis to support everything that your body needs and wants to do, um, then that can, you just don't, you don't have, your body doesn't have enough energy to do, you know, to run your reproductive system, uh, to keep you warm, to keep your hair and nails growing, to, you know, keep your immune system going. So it has to figure out something to shut down to save energy because it only has a finite amount. It only has as much as you're eating on a daily basis, minus anything you're spending on exercise. Um, so one of the things that it, one of the first things to go is often shutting down the reproductive system um, because that's, that's optional. You know, we don't have to have babies. So that's a very easy way for our bodies to save on energy. Um, so energy deficit is definitely the biggest factor in HA. Um, the two other factors are stress hormone, both stress hormone related, but in different ways. So high intensity exercise causes increases in cortisol and other stress hormones. And they, those hormones, um, the cortisol, the beta endorphins, um, I think it's ACTH, can all also impact the hypothalamus and help suppress it. Um, and then any psychological stress, uh, you know, it can be an acute event like the death of a loved one or a divorce, something like that. Um, huge amounts of cortisol can be produced and those can shut down the hypothalamus. And then also just sort of ongoing daily stress, um, you know, job stress, uh, stress in a relationship. Um, we don't often think of it this way, but the stress of counting calories and macros and um, you know, watching what we eat very carefully that, you know, that can actually be stressful and, um, you know, just overall type A perfectionist tendencies, those can all sort of play a part in the chronic stress that we're exposed to. Um, so any one of those factors alone can shut down the hypothalamus, but they seem to synergize and together, like if you have two or three of those factors, then it's even more likely that your hypothalamus is going to be shut down because it's getting suppressive signals from a bunch of different avenues. Um, there was a really interesting study that was done in monkeys and they exposed the monkeys to either um, you know, diet plus exercise or stress, which was in the form of moving from one cage to another, which is you know, stressful for the, um, for the animals or they exposed them to both, so diet plus exercise plus stress. Um, they found that in the monkeys that were either doing the diet plus exercise condition or the stress condition, oh, one or two out of 10 lost their menstrual cycles. In those that were exposed to both, I think it was eight out of 10 that lost their menstrual cycles. So that just, that just kind of shows you how 
all the factors can really work together to, 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 to suppress your system. Obviously, genetics plays a part. You know, we're all different. We all have, um, you know, different, maybe little small changes in our hormones, in our hormone receptors. Um, so, you know, that, that also is a, is a factor. Um, and then the final thing is kind of related to the energy deficit, but it's, it's weight loss. So if you've lost a, you know, a fair bit of weight in the past, which I, I did a big survey for my book to kind of provide some data around different thing, different factors in HA and recovery. Um, and I, I sort of defined a loss of 10 pounds, which is slightly, slightly under five kilograms or more um, as significant. And I was actually really surprised when I did, when I analyzed the results of the survey to find that 82% of the women in that cohort that had HA had had a weight loss of at least 10 pounds in their past. Um, and so I think that for many of us, we follow the societal ideals of wanting, you know, a smaller body being better. And so we might lose weight from a place where our body is happy and comfortable and we can eat whatever we want. We control our food. We exercise a lot. We lose weight. We think we're doing the right thing. We think we're healthy and, you know, healthier. Um, but in fact, that weight loss can either cause HA immediately, as it did with me, or it can predispose you to HA in the future. So that you know, if you've had that weight loss in the past, and then you maybe you increase the intensity of your exercise, boom, your period can go missing very easily. I think it's a common misconception that you need to be really underweight. So you need to be either have an eating disorder, be skin and bones before your period's going to be effective. But could you be technically overweight still or of a normal weight and still experience hypothalamic amenorrhea? Yes, um, HA can happen to somebody no matter what their absolute body size. It's much more about the factors that I've just described. So um, weight loss, uh, you know, the chronic underfueling, um, you know, all of those can affect somebody no matter what their absolute body size. It does tend to be more common in women in smaller bodies, um, just because they tend to be underfueling more. Um, but certainly I've seen HA like across a wide range of body sizes. Okay. And for those thinking, I've lost my period or I would love to lose my period because I don't want to get pregnant. What's your advice on that? Why is, why is our menstrual cycle so important for our health? It's, so it's extremely important for our health, not absolutely not just for getting pregnant. Um, you know, getting pregnant is a very small part of it, actually. Um, the monthly changes in um, not only estrogen and progesterone, which are the hormones that most people know about, but there are, there are about 20 different hormones that are involved in our menstrual cycle. Um, so all of those are cycling in different ways throughout, you know, throughout the month. Um, so we know that estrogen and progesterone are heavily involved in um, things like bone density. So there's very strong evidence that if you are not cycling regularly, um, that, that means your estrogen and progesterone are at baseline levels all the time. They're not getting that large increase that you would normally see um, you know, as you approach ovulation for the estrogen and after ovula ovulation for the progesterone. Um, so the, those are not only like, so bone density is a really big one. Um, there's, the evidence is mounting that estrogen plays a good part in um, helping our hearts stay healthy. And, um, you know, there's some of it comes from 
um, women who have undergone surgical menopause, uh, so before they would naturally, um, you find that heart disease increases markedly after that, and also in women who do go through, through normal menopause. Um, so that's another place where estrogen and um, probably progesterone um, is, is helpful for our general health, you know, our, is, is our heart. Um, there are also suggestions that uh, without the estrogen, that the estrogen is um, helpful for our brain development and supporting our brains. Um, women who undergo the surgical menopause are more likely to have um, earlier um, neurodegenerative diseases. So estrogen is a remarkable hormone. Um, and it, you know, we, we always talk a lot about estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. Maybe we throw in progesterone, but like I said, there are 20 di about 20 different hormones that are involved in our menstrual cycles. So I'm sure that some of those are playing roles in you know sort of normal, um, healthy hormones and behaviors um, that that we don't even necessarily know about yet. Absolutely. And apart from the lack of period, are there any other indicators or signs and symptoms someone could be experiencing when they're not having the period regularly? Well, so there's, there's the period, which is the bleed. Um, and then there's ovulation. So I actually think it's really important for women to know what ovulation is. It's basically that that's the ovulation is what drives everything else. It's not the period. The period is as a result of having ovulated and then your progesterone increases, um, you know, your lining thickens so that your body is ready to support a baby. And if you don't get pregnant, then the lining sheds and that's what causes your period. But it's all driven by the ovulation. I think, I do think it's important for women to know what happens as you get closer to ovulation and what your, how your body manifests ovulation so that you can understand your cycle and know if you are ovulating or having an anovulatory cycle. Some other symptoms that you can experience if you don't have your periods um, are things like being cold all the time, um, brittle hair and nails, um, you might get sick a lot. Um, obviously stress fractures are quite common in particularly in runners who are not getting their periods. Um, also in other athletes in sort of sports where leanness is really emphasized like ballet, um, I, you know, maybe figure skating. Um, so those are, those are some other issues. Uh, there's uh, often a lack of libido, no vaginal lubrication. Um, you know, those things can also be annoying. Um, so, you know, it, it, like I said, estrogen supports so many different systems in our body. Um, if there's, there's a sort of new term that's been defined in the last few years, um, for all of this, for the, the cluster of symptoms and, um, and effects of low energy density, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and if anyone's interested, I think if you Google that, there, there are some really great lists of the different systems that can be affected. Um, our GI system can be affected. Um, so, you know, lots of, there's lots of information out there about, the, um, you know, that, that people can look into more if they're interested in sort of a much more comprehensive list of things that can be affected. And is relative energy deficiency syndrome the same as the female athlete triad? Um, it's, it's similar. The female athlete triad uh, focuses obviously on women. Um, and then the, the two, the, so the three major components of the female athlete triad are energy, uh, energy deficiency through underfueling, um, which can, you know, that, that sort of manifests on the spectrum from disordered eating to eating disorders. Um, 
bone density issues. Uh, so again, there's a spectrum there. Some people can have you know, totally normal bone density all the way down to osteoporosis and then amenorrhea, um, and that's also on a spectrum from full amenorrhea to anovulation or luteal phase defects. So the female athlete triad comprises those three things. Um, relative energy deficiency in sports is kind of an idea of trying to broaden that to incorporate um, both men who do experience some symptoms of energy deficiency, not probably not to the same level that women do, but certainly men can manifest low testosterone if they are doing some of the same behaviors, so underfueling, exercising a lot. Um, and then also incorporating some, uh, some of the other symptoms that are not discussed with the fem you know, to go along with the female athlete triad. Um, so things like the you know, GI effects, immune effects, um, you know, just some of, the, some of those other things that we've just been discussing. And how would you differentiate HA from other conditions like loss of period due to PCOS or hypothyroidism or issues with celiac disease because that can sometimes lead to the period ceasing too. So how is it diagnosed and how is it different from those other conditions? So I think a good place to start is with blood work. That can often help differentiate between a lot of those different possibilities. Um, another one that you didn't mention is um, high prolactin can also manifest by suppression of the reproductive hormones. So I, I would suggest that if somebody has amenorrhea, um, they get things like follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, luteinizing hormone, which is LH, um, estradiol, uh, free testosterone, um, prolactin, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, and then some of the androgens, some of the other androgens, DHEAS and androstenedione. Those hormones together can kind of give you a good sense of which of the oh prolactin as well. Um, which of which of oh uh, and thyroid hormones. Okay, there's there's, there's, <laughs> there's a list. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, you can you know. I would probably start with the thyroid hormones, making sure that those are normal, um, because having a thyroid that's not optimal can absolutely affect other things. So um, I can't remember if it's a hypo or a hyperthyroid can affect prolactin and increase that, and then the prolactin suppresses the reproductive hormones. Um, if you you can have if you have a hyperlactin but your thyroid is normal, then it could be something called a pituitary microadenoma, which is a small growth on your pituitary gland that then causes your pituitary to make prolactin, which again suppresses your FSH and LH. Um, once those two things have been ruled out, looking at PCOS versus HA, um, with PCOS you will probably have normal FSH, um, LH, the LH might be high, and then also um, you should have high testosterone, DHEAS, androstenedione. Um, HA is the opposite in some ways. So with HA, your FSH will probably be normal. LH, probably low. Um, estradiol will be low. Testosterone, low. You know, all of, your, all of your other hormones are typically on the lower end of normal. So sometimes doctors will say, oh, your hormones are normal. You're fine. But if you actually look at where they fall and compared to the normal range, they're usually either below the normal range or just on the very low end. Um, so it's definitely worth it if you get your hormones tested to ask for the actual numbers and the lab, the normal lab ranges, just to kind of see where you fall and not just accept that, oh, it, you know, everything's normal. 
Um, that said, it is possible to have HA with completely typical, normal FSH and LH. Um, that happens in about 20% of women. And so you also have to take lifestyle factors into account. So some of the things that we've already talked about, like are you, um, are you quote unquote watching what you eat? Have you gone on a paleo diet recently, a keto diet? You know, are you avoiding gluten, dairy? Um, you know, just how restrictive is your overall eating or your overall eating habits? Do you eat, you know, treats when you go out with friends or when they're available at the office? Or are you the person that always says, no, no, you know, I don't like that. I don't want that. And, you know, um, so just kind of looking at your, your eating habits in, in that perspective. Um, how much are you exercising? You know, it can be for many women with HA, they're exercising on a daily basis, you know, one to two hours a day. Um, you don't have to be a top athlete. You also don't have to do any exercise at all. Um, so I have a, a graph from my survey where I looked at number of times per week that women with HA were exercising as well as hours per day. Um, there were nine women out of 303 that were not exercising at all. So that happens. Um, the, the median was exercising, I think it's six days a week for an hour a day. Um, but I have an HA information sheet that's available on my website. Um, if anyone wants to check that out, it's just noperiod.info slash HA, and that'll take you to the page and you can read a lot more and download my information sheet and also the first chapter of my book. So you can kind of see, you know, how that, uh, you know, how, how much that rings true to you. Um, so I think it can also be hard sometimes because with PCO, when women are told they have PCOS, they're often told eat less, cut out various foods, exercise more. Um, so that can, you know, the whole HA PCOS thing can be a little bit complicated. Um, another thing, another test that I think is very useful to get is an ultrasound of your ovaries and uterus. Um, with PCOS, the latest criteria are to have more than 26 follicles on one ovary or an ovarian volume of greater than 10 cubic centimeters. Um, with HA, you often have a lot of follicles, but your ovarian volume tends to be less than 10, 10, um, 10 cubic centimeters or 10 mils. Um, and it's, it's a little bit often doctors will look at the ovaries of a woman with HA and be like, oh, there's lots of follicles, you must have PCOS. But it's important to actually follow those criteria because women with HA do typically have what are better termed multi-cystic ovaries um, rather than polycystic. So polycystic, the, the latest research shows, um, do require more than 26 follicles per ovary. Um, so I think that's that's another thing that can be helpful to distinguish between between the two conditions. Is there a reason that you know of why HA only presents in less cysts than PCOS if they're both just due to anovulation? Um, I don't think they are both just due to anovulation. I think that the hormonal picture is different with PCOS, and so that's why it can lead to more follicles. I don't know exactly what the mechanism mm -hmm. is there, but okay. I do think that um, often that having the high androgens in PCOS is probably playing a part in the, the number of um, antral follicles that, that you see versus HA, where, you have, where, you, where all your hormones are low. Yeah, that makes sense. I know you talked about the restrictive diets and exercising, not too much, um, having treats every now and again, maybe some sugar and some gluten and dairy. 
but how does someone manage trying to be healthy and live a healthy lifestyle and really try to nourish the body with quote clean foods organic foods without risking losing their period well so i think part of the problem is that we live in a very um a world of black and white. So I think there's a lot of misinformation about what's actually healthy in terms of nutrition. Um, so there, there are a lot of cases, I think, where a study is done in some population, probably, you know, maybe a population that's susceptible to diabetes, and it's found that X amount of sugar is, you know, leads to a larger proportion of people getting diabetes. And so all of a sudden, there's all this news media, sugar is bad for you, sugar is toxic, sugar, you know. So I think that there's a lot of taking information from scientific studies and extending it way further than it's legitimate to do so. Um, so, you know, the idea that sugar is, you know, sugar is bad and sugar is associated with diabetes, um, there's, there's kind of a, you know, if that's the case, there are so many other factors at play. It's certainly not the case that if you eat one molecule of sugar, all of a sudden you're going to have diabetes. Um, so I think that really there needs to be more of a recognition that all of these things exist on a spectrum and that we're each individuals and can tolerate different amounts of things. Um, so the diet that's good for one person is not necessarily good for the person right next to them because you have you know, different genetics, different life circumstances, um, different responses to stress. I mean, there's, there's just so much about us that is unique that to take, um, you know, so the whole, the whole clean eating thing, I think, just takes dietary restriction too far. Um, and it often causes women or anyone really to underfuel because, um, you know, it can be really hard to eat what's actually a sufficient amount of calories for our bodies when you're focusing only on plant-based foods or, um, you know, not ever eating any processed foods, not ever eating any like super fatty foods. And so I, you know, it's just about maybe a little bit more balance in our, not only in our way of eating, but also in our way of thinking about food. And rather than thinking about it, you know, thinking about different foods as the enemy, just thinking about food as something we eat to sustain our bodies. Um, and, you know, I think the idea that there are certain foods that you just cannot ever eat is just, it just doesn't really follow biological principles. Um, you know, our bodies have enzymes to be able to digest these foods. You know, I think, um, you know, if you eat only sugar all day long every day, then of course you're going to be unhealthy. But by the same token, if you eat only broccoli all day long every day, you're also probably going to be unhealthy because you're missing out on a whole bunch of other nutrients that come from a, a wide variety of foods. So I think really the idea is, you know, just eat what you feel like eating. Um, you know, if you're eating, like, yeah, I mean, it, it's, just balance and, you know, some moderation and not always moderation. I mean, you know, sometimes if you want, if you, if, if, especially if you've been restricting for a long time, you might get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to let myself eat all the foods. And then you go and eat a whole bag of chips or, you know, a whole, you know, thing of cookies. And that's okay because it, your body will kind of adjust over time and you won't necessarily want all those things all the time for forever. But the more we restrict, the more, 
tempted we are by those forbidden, you know, quote unquote, forbidden foods. Um, so anyway, that's a long diatribe. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, I agree with that. It's very true. And I'm all for the body positivity movement where we should all feel comfortable in our skin. But for those who do want to lose weight, I'm totally fine with that. If they're uncomfortable in their skin, if they are slightly overweight or severely overweight and they want to lose weight, then I totally support that. But how does someone lose weight without also losing the period are there things that they can do or is it just like a protecting mechanism from your body so you raised some interesting questions there so the whole idea of you know overweight um that's 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 actually a really interesting one to explore so what i what i've discovered um i really encourage people to read uh linda bacon's health at every size and body respect um, she has found, or she she expressed that the definition of overweight and obese was actually not based on any real science. It was simply plucked out of the air. Is oh, let's choose these numbers and call this overweight, you know, quote unquote overweight or quote unquote obese. Um, I actually looked into the information for how the um, underweight BMI category was defined, and I found the same thing. I, I read through the World Health Organization report, and there wasn't, there was not strong evidence for coming up with 18.5 as being quote unquote underweight. You know, there's there's certainly studies that show that women with BMI or people with BMIs below that can be less healthy. Um, there, but there's like there was really no strong reason for choosing 18.5. So I think that sometimes that categorization can be unhelpful um, because our bodies are genetically made to be a whole range of different sizes. And you know, putting putting labels on a size just because of this random categorization, uh, I think is like it just makes people feel less worthy and because of the size of their body. So um, I've really tried to move away from that. And in fact, I just updated my book um, earlier this year to remove some of that terminology, um, just because I think that it's like, it's just not helpful in any way. And I think the focus should be more on, rather than on somebody's body size, focusing on their health parameters, their, you know, their cholesterol levels, blood work, you know, in, in the case of HA, focusing on the reproductive hormones um, and sort of tailoring health recommendations towards those parameters rather than just looking at size. Um, and a lot of when people feel, you know, quote unquote, uncomfortable in their bodies, it's really, I think it's really good to sort of investigate why that is and how much of it is coming from actually feeling physically uncomfortable versus that being not the societal norm and not looking like what we see in the magazines and on you know the on tv and all of that so i just i think that that's just an area that's worth somebody exploring so i um Intuitive eating is, a, I think, a really good model for people to follow. Um, there, there's, so there's the book Intuitive Eating itself by um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush that I really encourage people to read. Um, it sort of talks about how, um, you know, 
there, there are 10 principles of intuitive eating. Um, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not an intuitive eating practitioner. I haven't been trained in that. So I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll leave that for um, maybe for you. Maybe you could have one of them on your podcast. Um, but really, the idea is that uh, listening to your body, following your hunger cues, following your fullness cues, um, eating what you want to eat and not focusing, you know, focusing on that and focusing on being kind to your body rather than specifically focusing on your weight and your body size. Um, you know, some people find that they lose weight with intuitive eating. Some people find that they don't. But when that's not your focus anymore, I think you end up being happier and healthier overall for the long term. Yeah. When I mentioned the like overweight, those kind of terms, what I meant was it's when your weight actually starts affecting your health negatively. So both ways, like when you get too lean for your particular body weight, it's different for everyone and there's a massive range of numbers. Um, it's not the numbers that are the concern. It's mm -hmm. when you get too kind of um, overweight for your hormones, your mental health, inflammation levels, your joints, then how can someone lose weight when it is actually negatively affecting their health? Would in, uh, intuitive eating be the go-to for you? So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think the focus should not be on the weight because it's often not the weight itself that's the issue. It's probably more about eating and exercise habits. And so focusing on making changes in that way rather than, oh, I need to lose X amount or, you know, X kilos or pounds or whatever. I think focusing on, um, you know, making sure that you like focusing on eating a variety of foods, incorporating more fruits and vegetables. If you're not eating a lot of fruits and vegetables at the moment, um, you know, not eating out all the time. Um, uh, you know, sort of looking at it from that perspective. If you're if you're somebody who's been totally sedentary for a long time, you know, thinking about ways that you could incorporate more movement into your day. Um, you know, a little bit of walking. Maybe you find that um, you know, there's there's just so many different ways that we can move our bodies. You know, for me, I love, I really enjoy weightlifting. I like feeling strong. Um, I do. I play ice hockey. Um, I used to play volleyball. I love playing squash. Um, so finding a form of move, like dancing is a great one for people to, you know, to kind of pick up because there's just so much joy in dancing and moving your body in that way. So I think that if you focus on some of those habits and behaviors and lifestyle changes, rather than thinking about the body size, because it's really much more about incorporating some of those. And that's what really induces health rather than the absolute you know change in body size which if you do that in an unhealthy way which can be like you know the shakes or you know severely restricting your calories um, any of that stuff i think is really hard to maintain for the long term and so it honestly probably is more likely to make things worse than better um, you know maybe you have a short-term weight loss but it's much harder to maintain that if you're doing you know if you're focusing on diet and um, you know changing the body size rather than just changing your mindset around how you're eating and um, how you're exercising. So again, the, the book Intuitive Eating is great. Um, body Kindness by Rebecca Scritchfield is another one that, that I would strongly recommend to people to learn, you know, help you learn to appreciate your body for what it is and what it does for you, as opposed to thinking so much about, oh my gosh, I need to lose X amount or, you know, anything like that. So. Yeah, and I'll include the links to those books in the show notes for those who are interested as well. And I always say the same, I'm not focusing on weight or the numbers on the scale. 
if people are concerned about that when I explained that once the body's healthy and we're focused on health rather than the numbers, then the, the weight does actually regulate and kind of get to where it wants to be and get into that sweet spot where it feels happy and safe. But for people who may be struggling with the intuitive eating, say they have maybe a candida overgrowth that's causing the, them to crave sugar uncontrollably or they have issues with appetite regulation, leptin, ghrelin, those types of problems does intuitive eating still work with them or what are some other kind of ways that they can support their health um so this is getting a little bit out of my area of knowledge so i would probably suggest that that kind of question be addressed to somebody who's more specialized and trained in the intuitive eating okay no problem and onto the treatment of ha so the conventional treatment approach it's usually, from my experience, the birth control pill. It's going to get your period back. It's going to regulate your cycle and make all of your PMS symptoms go away at the same time, which sounds great. But what's the problem with that? Why is the birth control pill not the answer when it comes to a missing period? So I think the biggest reason that it's not the answer is that birth control pills typically contain only one or two synthetic hormones. So that's, you know, probably some form of estradiol um, at, at a low level and then some progesterone. So as you recall, we talked about there are t about 20 different hormones that are involved in our normal menstrual cycle. So to, to argue that replacing two of them is going to do the same thing, I think is you know, not really accurate. Uh, there was a nice study that came out recently where the researchers looked at a hormone called IGF-1, um, insulin-like growth factor one, and they found that that is actually suppressed by birth control pills. And it's highly involved in um, increasing bone density. So, you know, there's like a lot of doctors will say, oh, take the pill, it will protect your bones. But there have been quite a few studies where there's been evidence that that's not the case. Um, one that I like to point to was done in teenagers. Um, so this is comparing teenagers on the birth control pill versus those not on the birth control pill and regularly menstruating. Um, the, the girls on the pill gained bone density at a rate of about 2% 2 per, 2 per year, and those not on the pill were ga gained at 12%. So that's a pretty big difference. And you know, there, are, there are other studies that have, that have found similar results. Um, so if you, are, if you have HA and you are not willing yet to work toward recovery, then um, being on the pill is okay. It's better than not being on anything. Um, doing hormone replacement therapy is probably better. Um, that's something else they found in the study I was just telling you about the IGF-1 was that hormone replacement therapy where you're using bioidentical estrogen and progesterone, there was not the same decrease in the IGF-1. So that's probably better than being on birth control pills, although it does not, um, the hormone replacement therapy does not provide the same birth control protections the birth control pills do. So that's something to just, just to be aware of. But it probably is better for you health-wise. Um, but by far the best option is working to regain your own natural menstrual cycles. So that's through a combination of eating more. Um, I generally recommend about 2,500 calories per day, um, which can sound like a huge number if you've been restricting and you sort of 
have been taught through the you know through the media that you know you quote unquote should be eating fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred you know and many women are eating less than that even um, you know some of the some of the fitness tracker apps my fitness pal for example um, I think strongly encourages underfueling. I don't think that the amounts that they're telling people to eat are actually sufficient to fuel your body. Um, so, uh, you know, I really despise those apps. Um, you know, not only because of the underfueling, like the, the, the caloric recommendations that tend to be under what we actually need, but also because, um, like we talked about earlier, tracking can, can actually be kind of stressful. Um, and you know, these days we're tracking everything. We're tracking our calories, we're tracking our steps, we're tracking our heart rate. Um, so all of that kind of forces us to be thinking about food and fitness all the time. Um, and I really think that they should be so much more secondary in our lives and let us focus on other things that are more important, like our relationships and you know what we can do to make the world better. Um, so, um, let's see, where was I? I keep going off on these tangents. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Where does the kind of 2,500 calories come in? How was that oh. determined? Okay. So, um, the, the sort of common recommendation has been 2000 calories per day for a woman, um, of, you know, sort of typical stature. Um, and that is based on self-reported caloric intake. So they did a bunch of surveys. People said how much they were eating in a day. The average is about 2,000. So that's kind of become the recommendation because um, our, when, our weight, when our weight is stable, we're probably taking in about as much as we're expending. So if you're taking in 2,000 a day and your weight is stable, you're probably expending 2,000 a day. That's sort of where that comes from. Um, the problem is that many people tend to under-report when they are asked on surveys how much they're eating. They might forget a snack. They might, um, you know, not necessarily count things accurately. They might estimate that they're eating less, you know, less volume-wise than they actually are. So more recently, researchers have used a couple of different methods to find, um, to really get a more accurate idea of how many calories we're um, taking in and burning on a daily basis. Um, and so that's actually where the 2500 comes from. So there are two different methods. One is through using what's called doubly labeled water. Um, so it's water that has two different radioactive isotopes in it, one, um, one on a carbon, one on a hydrogen, I think, or maybe it's oxygen and hydrogen. Um, but anyway, the researchers are able to measure how much of the two different molecules comes out in your um, in your breath and um, I think water. It's been a little while since I've read the paper, so I'm a little sketchy on the details. But basically, they came up with a series of equations, and I use those equations to kind of figure out that for a woman who's about five foot six, um, which is about 165 centimeters, um, 2,500 calories a day is sort of what you should be eating um, to maintain. A, you know, a healthy, fertile, you know, body size. Um, if you're shorter, you can, you know, it's a little bit less. If you're taller, it's a little bit more um, because obviously, like your your height has an impact on how much, you know, how much lean body mass you have, which is really the driver behind that. Um, another group used a different method um, where basically they have people in a room that measures um, all the intake and output, and they also came up they came, they came up with an equation where it's about um, 45 kilocalories per kilogram of lean body mass. And if you multiply all that out, it ends up being the same about 2,500 calories a day for a woman who is um, active. 
which I define as sort of, you know, I think most women with HA tend to be on the more active side. You know, even if we have a quote unquote sedentary job, we're getting up, we're walking around, we're, you know, taking walking breaks. So I, you know, I think that for somebody who's active that, you know, that's a, that's a reasonable daily caloric target. Is that for the average woman then or someone struggling with HA? Do they increase to 2,500 to get the period back? Is that what you mean by that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the 2,500 is about what, you know, what we should all be eating. Um, and but so for somebody who, who does not have their period, they've typically been eating quite a bit less than that. So you increase to 2,500, um, there will probably be some weight gain. Um, but it's, you know, it, it all goes to getting your body to the size that it naturally wants to be at, um, as well as giving your body fuel for all of the things that has been, that have been shut down over the time that you've been under fueling, um, and sort of repairs, you know, particularly if you've been severely underweight, but even, you know, even if you've just been a little bit under the size that your body really wants to be, um, or if you've just been restricting for a long time. Um, giving your body some fuel to repair things that it has not had energy to repair in the past. Um, that, that all is, that all is you know, what, what happens when you actually fuel your body appropriately. There's quite a bit of terminology in when I was in the Facebook group about going all in with your diet. Can you just mm-hmm. explain what that is? And also there's kind of a controversy whether you should stick with just healthy foods. Obviously that's different for everyone, but should you focus on healthy foods or should you just eat whatever you want, junk food included? Um, so I kind of hate the term junk food. <laughs> in, the book, I, in the book, I use the term fertility foods instead. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are a couple of things around that, that type of food. You know, hyper palatable foods is another, you know, yeah. another way that we could describe them. Um, so the thing is that it can be really challenging to get in enough calories if you are focusing only on the quote unquote healthy foods. So like if you think about it, a cup of spinach has like seven calories in it. So you have to eat a boatload of stuff if you're focusing only on, you know, sort of raw vegetables and, you know, that kind of thing. So it can like a piece of pizza has like 450, you know, some yeah. something like that calories. So, you know, do you want to eat 10,000 cups of spinach or do you want to eat one piece of pizza? Like, you know, to me, there's a little bit of a trade-off there. And again, it's this idea that like one slice of pizza is not going to do anything to you health-wise. I mean, you know, probably if you ate only pizza all day for 20 years, then yeah, you might have some issues with artery clogging or what have you. Um, But, you know, I think just if you're, if you're eating a wide variety of foods, um, incorporating some of the hyperpalatable foods is going to be an easy way to get in the calories that your body needs. Um, the other thing is, like, it can be very constraining to our lives to to sort of be in a place where, like, oh, I don't eat food X, or you know, like I've seen women who make separate meals for themselves and their partners, or themselves and their kids, and you know, it's a lot of extra time that's spent that's really not necessary, you know. Just generally, you know, cooking at home is always, you know, that's always a good thing to do because then you know what's, you know, what's in the food, you know, what the ingredients are, Um, you know, but just sort of thinking about why you are afraid to eat some of the foods that maybe you haven't eaten, like, you know, a bar of chocolate or um, a donut, you know, there's, again, like one donut is not going to kill you. A, A dozen donuts is not going to kill you. So 
just kind of challenging yourself to eat some of those foods that maybe you feel like are super unhealthy, but in reality, your body is designed to digest them and they like they pack a good caloric punch. So they can be really good foods to incorporate to, to try and help you recover your missing period. Um, and there's no reason not to just eat them when you want to normally, even if you even if you do have your period. I mean, I think, you know, if your life is all about controlling what you eat and exercising a lot and not doing anything quote unquote wrong food wise, um, you know, you miss out on a lot of stuff and you miss out on a lot of um, personal relationships and relationship building times. And, you know, I just, I think one of the really great things about having HA and recovering is learning that you don't have to control your eating and your exercise nearly as much as we are kind of told that we need to um, by the, you know, by the popular media. So, um, you know, so many women have expressed to me as they've recovered from HA, how much happier they are and just eating what they feel like eating. And sometimes you, you know, sometimes you eat chips or French fries and sometimes you eat a salad and, you know, you just, it's just food. It's, it does, it, it stops being so much of a focus and it's just, Part of your life, food is food is fuel, and you just don't think about it anymore. And it, you know, it just it's it's so much easier that way. Yeah, but I think the problem I see with that is the people who I've worked with who have HA, they do feel terrible when they eat some of these quote junky foods. Um, when they have extra sugar, sometimes because of other health conditions that they have mm-hmm. in terms of food intolerances, insulin resistance, gut issues they can often go alongside. So when they eat maybe some pizza or some donuts, they feel horrendous afterwards. So mm. is it possible to recover your period and overcome HA with just healthy foods if some, if somebody wanted to do that? Um, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> um, but again, you know, I think what I, what I have seen sometimes is that women come in, come to me with all sorts of gut issues and, um, you know, IBS, what, what have you. Um, and it's, it, I, in some ways, I feel like it's a slippery slope. So if you start with caloric restriction, you're underfueling your body. One of the things it can do is stop pr- producing certain digestive enzymes. So you underfuel and then you start feeling icky when you eat certain foods. So you stop eating those foods and that leads to more underfueling. And you know, you cut out you're cutting out more and more and more because that's sort of the um, that's sort of the dogma these days is, you know, uh, carbs are bad for you, gluten's bad for you, sugar's bad for you. So people read this, they feel like dairy's bad for you. Um, so they read this and they're like, oh well, maybe that's my problem. So they cut out more and more and more foods until they have this very constrained, restricted diet. And when they eat any of those things that they're not used to, yeah, they feel they feel poorly. Um, what I find is that if you kind of add back things slowly, um, for many of these women, it, the the key thing is really eating more, eating you know, getting enough energy in. And as that happens, they find that they are able to reintroduce some of these foods that have perhaps caused problems in the past until they get to a point where they can eat everything and they don't have the bloating and the, you know, the, the other digestive issues, the constipation. Um, so I think it's, it's a very delicate balancing act during recovery, trying to, um, you know, add back foods. So I think, you know, trying some of the fear foods, um, trying some of the things that you think make you feel poorly, but really 
observing your body as you're having them afterwards. Um, you know, I think that that can be helpful. My, my co-author, Lisa, actually had, um, a, you know, a couple of times where she had to go to the hospital because of an anaphylactic reaction to beef. And then after working on recovery, she's now able to eat meat with no problem. So, you know, it's, I'm not saying that that's true for everybody. I mean, but it's just, there's this, there's such a, um, there's so much fear mongering in nutrition information that we get um, that I think it leads us down. Like I said, it leads us down the slippery slope to restriction and more and more and more restriction when sometimes the answer is actually the opposite. It's just, you know, it's eating more and, um, you know, allowing our, giving our body the fuel that they need. Um, the, one of the issues with sort of, you know, sticking with the quote unquote healthy eating is what I've already described is that, it can be incredibly difficult to get in enough calories that way. Um, so I think, you know, if you are able to, then sure, you can do that. But I still would encourage um, challenging yourself a little bit to step out of your comfort zone, to step out of some of those foods that you're, um, that you're used to eating and try some of the foods that you maybe think of as not so healthy. Um, because, you know, again, it's the, the more the wider range of things that we allow ourselves to eat. Um, I think the more, the less restrictive our overall mindset and it just, you know, there's definitely a mind body connection as well. And sort of releasing some of the fear and stress around, um, you know, being this perfect picture of health and eating this, per, you know, eating this perfect diet. Um, you know, I just see so many benefits to that in the, in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I always said that the goal is to, get you healthy and get you back into a place of health so that you can go on and do whatever your passion is. My passion is health and nutrition. However, for someone else, I totally understand that that's not what they're into. So my goal is to help them get healthy again so that they can go and um, excel in their career and start a family and do whatever they love. It shouldn't be their passion too, just because I'm kind yeah. of sharing that with them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so one, one more point on that is, um, a lot of women these days are restricting carb intake, um, particularly simple carbs. And that's something in particular that there is evidence that that alone can affect your hypothalamus. So your hypothalamus has glucose and insulin sensors. And so it kind of needs the spikes that you get from some of the simple carbs. So I think that in particular is a place where people should really be, you know, a lot of the um, information that's out there is based on studies in men. And so I think, you know, certainly sort of recognizing that, you know, a keto diet in particular seems to be really bad for women hormonally. Um, so that's just another thing to consider in terms of, you know, what we've been talking about, about loosening up some of those restrictions. Um, so certainly I've seen people um, really thrive when they add back some carbs into their diet if they've been restricting those. Yeah, the keto diet can help in the short term women regain the cycle if they're suffering with PCOS due to severe insulin resistance. However, I've seen also the more that they carry on with that and if they don't then shift over to a more um, carbohydrate containing diet, uh, they obviously may not be able to tolerate massive amounts or the simple carbohydrates that you recommend. But I definitely agree that the keto diet is not the best for women with um, hormones just in general yeah. whether they've yeah. got whether they've got a hormone imbalance <laughs> or not and how do you make sure that someone's eating enough without tracking or do you often recommend tracking for a couple of days just to make sure you're reaching that good amount and then deleting the apps 
Yeah, exactly that. Okay. So if you, you know, if you already have been tracking, then it's usually pretty easy to know, okay, I could add these things into my, into my daily fare to kind of get up to the 2,500 calorie level. If you haven't been tracking, like doing so for a couple of days, I think can be useful just to see where you're at. Um, and then again, you figure out what things you might need to add. You know, it can be some spoonfuls of nut butter. It can be some nuts. It can be, um, you know, avocado. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways. Putting more salad dressing on your salad or adding it if, if you have been avoiding it, um, you know, adding olive oil into um, pasta sauces or, you know, there's so many different ways to add, um, to add calories into your day that don't necessarily increase food volume. But yeah, just, so just tracking, tracking for a day or two um, and then, you know, just kind of focusing, like following that general eating pattern, I think usually gets people to a, to a good place. With the psychological aspects of HA, so when people start to gain weight, that can be a really kind of stressful thing for them. Are there any advice or tips that you recommend to help your mind kind of adapt to that, the new changes and feel at ease with the whole process? Because it can be quite stressful. Yeah, I think the number number one recommendation is getting rid of your scale, um, not ever stepping on that thing again, because honestly, like knowing your weight does nothing positive for you. I mean, there's, you don't need to know that number. And you know, especially if you're weighing yourself every day through this process, that can be extremely challenging because you've probably gotten used to yourself at a particular size and seeing the number go up when societally we're told that's a bad thing all the time. Um, you know, that can be really, really difficult. So I think one of my number one tips is just getting rid of the scale altogether. Um, Number two is um, maybe getting some new clothes. So things that are stretchy and flowy and that don't constrain you particularly. I think it's really hard if you're wearing things like jeans and they start to get tight around your middle. Um, if you're wearing those all day long, it's a constant reminder about the change in your body size. Whereas if you're wearing clothes that are stretchy, that are comfortable and just move with you and your body, then you don't have that same kind of tactile input as to the change in your body size. And so it becomes much easier just not to, you know, not to think about it. Um, some other things that can help are definitely cleaning up your social media feed and getting rid of some, you know, anybody that makes you feel, you know, you compare and makes you feel unworthy or less than like, get rid of that stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, and then focus, look for some body positive accounts, look for, you know, a, look for a wide variety of bodies and people to follow. I think, you know, seeing, um, seeing a range of people of a range of different sizes and colors and shapes doing all kinds of amazing things like that can be so life affirming. One of the, um, one of the people I started following a little while ago is a guy whose um, Instagram account, I think is 300 pounds and running. He is this amazing guy. He, he does marathons. He wears this t-shirt that says slow AF as in slow <laughs> just fabulous like he gets so much joy out of his life and it's not about his size it's about all the cool things that he's doing and you know so following people like that who can really help you see that what we've been shown in most of the popular media is not real life and it's not you know for many of us it's not a happy life to be constantly um, you know focused on the size of our bodies and you know, just seeing real people out there doing real things, I think can be, you know, hugely um, helpful. Um, 
Another thing is finding some mantras that speak to you, affirmations. Um, you know, if there are particular times of the day that you feel particularly triggered, um, you know, having something written down that you can just pull out and look at, like, um, my body is an, not an ornament, it's an instrument, um, you know, uh, I'm so much more than what I look like, um, the scale doesn't define me, you know, all like just thinking about all those kinds of things and um, having them at your fingertips in during times of the day when you might feel particularly badly about yourself, you know, maybe posting something on your mirror if you find like looking in the mirror in the morning while you're brushing your teeth, if you find that challenging. Um, so yeah, those are, those are a few ideas. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think it could be a great time for an excuse to go on a shopping spree, maybe get some yoga leggings, some yeah. yoga pants. Yeah. 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 And you know, if you're looking to get pregnant, which many women, um, many women don't realize that they have HA until they do want to get pregnant because they're on the birth control pill, which masks any kind of change in your period for the most part. Um, so if you do want to get pregnant, you know, you think of them as first trimester clothes because you know, that's a, that can be a time when your normal clothes don't really fit. So having some stretchy, flowy things, it's great. Yeah, um, exactly. Good idea. And let's talk about the exercise component components as well. So you mentioned that it's usually under eating, over exercising, over stressing that can be kind of the vicious cycle that can lead to HA when it comes to recovery is exercise off the table is it something that you should just stop or is there a way that you can incorporate exercise without stressing a body too much so i was actually really surprised when i did the survey for my book um i i thought that it would be overall amount of exercise that was uh, correlated with period recovery or not um, and what I found was actually that it was very strongly correlated with high intensity exercise and really not at all with low intensity exercise. Um, so what I recommend in the book is cutting out um, high intensity exercise. So that's things like running seems to be one of the worst exercises for HA. I don't really know why. Um, but, other, you know, for me, ice hockey, um, you know, things that are getting your heart rate up to, um, you know, a high level, I think is what I would classify as high intensity. Um, so you know, what you do, whether you go cold turkey and cut everything out or whether you kind of taper down over time, that really has to be an individual decision because there's no path that's right for everybody. You know, it, it really depends on where you are in your life and what your goals are. Um, so I think ultimately you may have to cut out all high intensity exercise. You may not. You may be able to cut down by 50%. So it, you know, it depends if you want to get pregnant like today, then probably your best path forward is going to be cutting out all high intensity exercise right now. Um, if you are trying to get your cycles back because you know you have osteoporosis, probably the same thing. You probably want to cut out your high intensity exercise. If you know you have normal bone density, you don't want to get pregnant for a couple of years, then you can take a little bit longer. So maybe you can cut down by 50%. Um, you know, slow, relax the intensity a little bit. Don't sort of go for personal records. Um, you know, do that for a while. See if you get, you know, definitely do the eating more part. I think that's, you know, that's the number one thing. Um, you know, maybe you, maybe you get your period back while you're continuing. So it really, you know, it's, it's got to be a sort of conversation with yourself about what your goals are and what's, you know, what's most important to you. Um, and, you know, kind of, you can go down a path like for some women 
try the 50% and they don't get their periods back and then they try 25% and they don't and then like, oh, this is just not worth it anymore. Um, you know, doing a slow jog once a week, uh, you know, is that, you know, I get nothing out of that. So I'm just going to go full turkey. And then they get their periods back a couple of weeks later. Um, so, you know, it's really this kind of interplay between your goals, your, you know, your desires, what, what works for you. Because the thing is, HA recovery has to work for you because otherwise it's, you're not going to stick with it. And then, you know, it's like, what's, what's the point? So it has to be, you have to come at it from a place that, um, you know, that you of things that you can actually accomplish. Um, that's it. So this is like for somebody that has an eating disorder, like things can, that can be completely different. And I would definitely defer to medical professionals on that. And, you know, then it's often there's psychological barriers that are in place and make you feel like you need to exercise. You can't eat more. So, um, you know, that's, that's really a whole different ball game from what I'm talking about, which is somebody who's, um, does not have a bona fide eating disorder. It's just, they think they're being healthy and they've got, you know, some disordered eating maybe, um, you know, if you're addicted to exercise, if you feel like you must exercise every single day or the world will end, that might be another time where you could consider, okay, maybe I should take a week off and just see what happens. And maybe that week turns into two weeks. Um, because I think um, a lot of times we don't, you know, we're, we've convinced ourselves that we need to exercise every day and, you know, kind of learning that, no, you don't actually need to. It can feel great to move your body, absolutely, but the world doesn't end if you don't go for a run or if you just sit on the couch for a day. Um, so, you know, I think that that's another factor that should probably come into it is how much you're exercising because you're enjoying the movement versus you feel like you must exercise and, you know, kind of taking that into account as well. Yeah, it's an important differentiation. How long, if someone's change their diet so they're eating more they're cutting back on the high intensity exercise how long will it usually take for the periods to return i know it's probably completely different for everyone depending on what else is going on but just as an average can yes. they expect the period to come back within a couple of weeks or is it six months so the the median time to recovery from my survey was about five months um, and the average time was eight months. So the average is higher than the median. The median is the number that's in the middle, like half the people were, half the people were quicker, half the people were slower. Um, the average is a bit higher because there were some women who took much longer to recover. And I think that's partly because um, they didn't find me and this whole idea of the recovery plan for a while, you know, after they were sort of quote unquote trying to recover, um, but not necessarily going to the place of really actually eating enough for their bodies. So I think that's why the average is a little bit higher. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people do get their, you know, do ovulate and get their first periods within a few weeks, but I would say that's much less common. It's, it's, it's usually a few months, you know, three to six months, um, you know, maybe even three to nine months. Um, and certainly can take longer than that. Um, there are other things that one can do, you know, if you've, if you've sort of gotten to your body to a place where it's at the size it wants to be, um, which is often, you know, if you had weight loss in your past, um, the, the, your sort of set point is often where you were prior to that weight loss when you were sort of eating freely and not really thinking about controlling your body, um, size. Um, 
so sort of getting back to that sort of body size, eating, you know, eating freely, cutting up high intensity exercise. Um, you know, if you've done that for a while and you're, you've given your body a chance to sort of settle there, then there are other things, there are other things that we can do to jumpstart your cycles and try and, you know, try and get things going again if it's not happening naturally. Um, but definitely time is an ingredient to this whole equation. So, you know, I, I do encourage people to wait at least six months before sort of trying one of those other options, which I do talk about in the book. But Yeah, would some of those things include herbs or supplements? Do you tend to see that they can help kickstart and bring forward the period? Um, so there are very few things that I think I would credit with really helping to bring back a period in terms of supplements. Um, so the only one that has any strong evidence around it is acetyl L-carnitine. Um, that's an amino acid that our bodies have naturally. And um, there have been three research studies that have been done where they found that women taking that for three to six months um, have menstrual cycles return at a rate of sort of 60 to 70% versus those not taking it where it's much, much lower than that. Um, so that, that is one supplement that I do often recommend to people. Um, it seems to work better if your luteinizing hormone, your LH, is on the lower side. So if you have a normal LH, probably not worthwhile. The recovery rates um, in that case is more like 20 to 30%. Um, so that's, that, that is one thing that I recommend. And I do have a long blog post where I sort of go through the studies, um, and that's at noperiod.info slash ALC. Um, and then the only other thing that I often recommend is flax seed, uh, ground flax seed. So you've probably heard of the whole seed cycling thing, you know, take flax seed and pumpkin seed and then switch to sesame and sunflower. Sunflower, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually looked into that and, you know, I was trying, like, where is this idea of like switching between the seeds coming from? And I could not find origins anywhere. Um, you know, it's just sort of out there on the internet. And so I looked into the medical literature and it was actually really interesting because in the medical literature, there are no studies where any of those seeds are given to people in a, on an on again, off again basis. It's all, let's take sunflower seeds for three to six months and measure, you know, measure hormonal changes. Um, and honestly, of those four seeds, the only one that has strong evidence for being beneficial for hormones is flaxseed. So that's what, that's why that's my recommendation now is, you know, no seed cycling, just take flaxseed every day. Um, certainly the other seeds aren't going to do anything bad. Like, you know, they're, it's totally fine to eat them, but I just think that if you're looking to recover your periods, then flaxseed is the one that I would go with. Hmm. I think it's one of those like naturopathic practices that doesn't really have any studies, but it's had maybe some positive yeah. results in some people and it's just been passed down. Yeah. And I've definitely tried it myself. I personally didn't notice much difference, but mm -hmm. I've known other people who swear by that it's got the period back. It's helped them get pregnant. So we can't really, yeah. can't really say that that's not right. Um, yeah. But agree with flax seeds. That's usually the, the top one that's got the most research. So yeah, stick with those. But consume the other seeds as much as you want yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool so I want to kind of wrap up things by asking you a few specific questions maybe about you personally sure. so the first one would be about your go-to breakfast so a lot of my clients struggle with breakfast ideas they're not sure mm -hmm. what to eat um if they are 
avoiding things like cereal and toast for whatever reason they're not really aware of other breakfast options so maybe you could share some breakfast ideas and maybe put a HA spin on it so mm -hmm. if a woman has hypothalamic amenorrhea what's a really good breakfast that she could go for to help boost her hormones um, so my favorite breakfast is I actually make my own yogurt. Um, and so I have a big bowl of that with that I put honey into, and then I put chia seeds and flax seeds and hemp on the top. So I put like a layer of honey and then a layer of those seeds and then I eat the seeds off and then I put another layer of honey and more of the same seeds and eat that off. So it all mixed in, it kind of like gets all gummy and gross. Um, so that's like, that is definitely my go-to breakfast. Um, on days when I don't, like I haven't made the yogurt or whatever, um, I'll often have um, toast with sunflower butter um, and, you know, a nice glass of whole milk. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of on the dairy train. <laughs> you know, I know that's not, uh, that doesn't work for everybody. Yep. But certainly for me, I feel perfectly fine when I have dairy. So the, the, those are sort of my two my two go-to breakfasts. I know a lot of women like to do overnight oats um, just because that's something that you can prepare the night before and have as a quick breakfast. Um, and that's something that also that you can throw the flaxseed into, um, you know, a lot of fruits. Um, I'm not a big fruit and vegetable eater. It's actually kind of... <laughs> and it stems from some experiences in my early childhood and you know I didn't um I often joke that my gateway vegetable was pizza when I was in high school <laughs> until I had pizza I did not eat any fruits or vegetables whatsoever um so yeah and so, um so now I'm I, I'm much more varied in terms of my vegetables I still can't I still don't like the texture of fruit so I'll drink you know I'll have it in smoothies and stuff like that but um yeah so but too, certainly you can add fruit into, you know, into your yogurt if that's something that you enjoy and, you know, probably is healthier than what I do. But hey, <laughs> we all have things, right? There is some kind of scientific research behind people's aversion to vegetables. There's mm -hmm. people who have like the hyper responder or hyper taster gene where they, uh -huh. especially cruciferous vegetables, they're just repulsed by them. So that may be going on. Yeah. <laughs> that may be your kind of issue. The second question is going to be if there was one herb, nutrient or supplement that you personally can't live without. So if you were stranded on a desert island, if there was one product or food that you just need to have with you, what, what would that be? Um, I really can't say that there would be one thing that I would be unable to live without. I mean, I think that we can get our nutrients and needs met in so many different ways that to say that there's one thing that's going to like be this perfect balancing magic pill um you know i just don't i don't really buy that okay. so you know, certainly in terms of ha recovery um none of those supplements i've ever seen working in somebody who's not making the lifestyle changes to go along with it yeah. so you know i just i i don't buy the idea that there's like a magic pill for anything um so yeah <laughs> yep and third question would be What's your biggest piece of advice for someone currently struggling with HA? Um, hmm. I think my biggest piece of advice would be to try and work on the mental aspect along with making the lifestyle changes. Um, so some of the things that we talked about before, like learning about, you know, people who are doing amazing things and, you know, no matter what their body size and 
learning that you are so much more than what you look like and your value to the world does not come from the size of your body. Um, it doesn't come from, you know, how many lines or wrinkles you have on your face. It doesn't come from the color of your hair. You know, it comes from who you are and what you do and who you love and who loves you and, you know, the relationships and the, you know, the other things that you can do, I think are so much more important and sort of, it's very hard in this, in this day and age to appreciate that and accept that for yourself. Sometimes it's very easy to do for other people and to, you know, not focus on what other people look like necessarily, but more on what they do and their relationship with you. But we tend to be so much more critical of ourselves. Um, so I think giving some of the grace that we give to other people to ourselves as well can be one of the best parts about this journey. And one of the things that I think is most important to learn. And final question is where can everyone find you online? So maybe share where you can get your book, your Facebook group, and maybe social media if you're on that too. Absolutely. So um, my website is um, Um So I have a blog on there where I have tons of information about different supplements and you know various other additional research that I've done since publishing my book. You can obviously get my book from there. Um, I do appreciate it if you order from there rather than Amazon because Amazon doesn't pay as well. Um, so it's just a nice way to support me or any other author. Um, you can, uh, I do have a section where you can, uh, sign up to work with me directly. Um, I do work with people one-on-one, -on -one, so that's all on the website. Um, the Facebook support group, um, there are quite a few of them, but a good place to start is just at noperiod.info slash support. That's sort of the current general group. I've started a new one, um, about once a year, just because I feel like when they get too big, it gets a little overwhelming and people kind of get lost. So I'd like to keep it a little bit smaller and more intimate. Um, and then on social media, I'm at no period now what on Instagram and Twitter, but much more active on Instagram. So that's probably a good place to find me. Great. And I'll again include all of those links in the show notes for everyone wondering. And I just want to thank you so much, Nicola, for your time. This has been a great podcast. You've shared so much valuable information. And yeah, just thank you so much again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to share with more people. It's great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next step to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.